All right, you may be seated. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's, it's amazing when sometimes things have to switch around. Uh, as uh, Sean was indicating, uh, we had uh, getting ready for this trip to the eastern Kentucky, ended up shifting uh, the music at the beach and the music here. So I'm um, praise God that uh, we have folks that are willing to step up and stand in. Thank you, James. And uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, if you could bring the word cloud up, I'll be looking and just reminding that we are a Bible-believing church. Uh, we're not ashamed of it. It's pretty amazing that as we stood on the beach and we had the cross hoisted up an extra five feet today, it was visible uh, from everybody on the boardwalk because of the way the sand has been shifting. You couldn't see it. So when the guys lifted it up a little higher, we lift high the cross uh, because we're not ashamed of the gospel that it proclaims. Likewise, when you come into the sanctuary, uh, we want to make sure that you see that the Bible is central. Uh, in it contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. The words of eternal life cannot be found in any other place. They are preserved for us. As uh, Paul told Timothy, they are, uh, they are, the, um, they are revealed, they're God-breathed, and are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, even for instruction in righteousness, so that the men and women of God might have what they need, that they might be complete. So this is God's word. If you'll turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll be looking at chapter 2. Uh, and as we reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as given in the originals, you will realize that this, if you get offended, this is what God has preserved for us. It is for our edification. So let us look at the verses today that are printed for us in verse uh, 4 and 5 and 6. This is Solomon in his sage age. Uh, he writes, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds uh, and, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of, the grow, of growing trees. And he goes on and on. This is our text today. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help us to see the significance of these words. We realize that this is not the totality, but, but a taste of what was written in this presentation. Show us the truth and prepare us to come to your table. Lord, we pray that you will meet with us and we will respond and worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open. I want to be able to remind you of where we are. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is, uh, we're going to look at chapter 1 very quickly and lead up to where, we, where we're going to be preaching today. But uh, this is written by Solomon. Solomon was somebody that you would not have liked to have a debate with. Uh, he was sharper than most everybody else around him. You might even argue that he was wittier than the rest. Uh, why? Because God had blessed him uh, as the son of David, with his dad being a man after God's own heart, Solomon was, was uh, positioned to be the next king. And uh, he was to rule in his father's stead. And uh, David wanted so much to be able to have the house of the Lord built. And God told David, no, I'm going to leave it to your son because, David, you're a man of war. And so God's house is supposed to be a place with peace. And so David was able to gather a lot of things together and prepare, but it was Solomon that received this blessing. 
Now, when we're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reading uh, Solomon's writings from the perspective, as I said, from a sage, from a man with gray hair and a gray beard. I assume he had some hair. Anyway, when you look at Solomon, you're going to realize that he is not seen as a rookie or as somebody that was clueless, but rather one that has authority. And when he writes this book, he doesn't write it as somebody that is like a preacher that is trying to shove it down your throat. He writes it as a pundit to be able to help you to be able to wrestle through it. In fact, this book is written in a sense for secular people to read. Because when anybody reads it, they're going to see that his arguments are sound. And then when he ends up bringing some additional revelation about God, then you're left just saying, yeah, yeah, and you have to swallow it. Because it's true. I call this, it's in the poetic section of the Old Testament, because you have the five books of Moses, then you have the 12 books of history, and then the five books of poetry. That includes the book of Job, which is a drama. Then it includes the Psalms, which is a hymn book. And then it includes the, the three books that Solomon wrote. The one is a youngster when he was in love, a Song of Solomon. Then when he was a dad, it was written as a, uh, the book of Proverbs, very good insights that he passes on to his son. But then as an old man, before he dies, he shares with us this, this magnificent piece of, uh, of writing that actually, as I said, is hard to argue with. And yet most of us, when we read it, we get a little bit depressed. The key word that you find, if you open your Bibles up and read along in chapter 1, is that he says, these are the words of the preacher, or the, it could be translated, the pundit. These are the words of Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and his theme he gets to right in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vain. It's all empty. It's all fruitless. And then he asks this question, what does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he asks this interesting question that has to be solved. If you're going to be living on this earth, what are you here for? The toil that you do under the sun is what are you doing and accomplishing? Does it matter? Solomon ends up addressing several of these thoughts. Well, how might it matter? In chapter 2, he's already done a few things, so I want to jump to our text. If you have your fourth point supplement, you'll see that the three main points of the sermon today, are, are they all begin with an E. The first one is the experiment, second is the evaluation, and third is the expectations. Um, as you look at the beginning here of the experiment, we're in chapter 2, where Ecclesiastes, or when, when um, the, uh, the writer, author, Solomon, is now trying his third experiment. Pastor, what do you mean? In chapter 1, he has been telling us about who he is. And in verse 12, he says, I'm Solomon. I'm the a king over Israel. Uh, and then in verse 13, he begins to show what he experimented with. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Okay, this is where he says, I'm trying to use wisdom to figure it out. He ended up being a wise guy. But at the end of chapter 1, what do you discover? In verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. He said, Man, I experimented with wisdom. I really tried to figure it all out. I, but as I, I like the futility that Charles Schultz put in the peanuts, you know, with Charlie Brown, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And there's a sense in which, boy, you figure this out, then there's more to figure out. 
He said, it's just a vexation. He says, you just keep increasing and increasing and increasing, but there's no end to the increase that you need to get. So then in verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, so I'm going to try experiment number 2, which is pleasure. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so then he begins to say, hey, I'm trying to find my meaning and purpose in life. Since I can't get it in just being wise, I'm going to get it by trying the things that the world tells me is enjoyable. What's enjoyable? Well, if you listen to any commercial, they're going to tell you you ought to try this or try this or try this. I remember McDonald's had a great one. You deserve a... All of us learned that very well. I think we believe them. You know, and then the idea was the way you get a break is if you get their, their stuff. Solomon was not talking about all that kind of pleasure with food and all. He ended up talking about the pleasures of, of sex, the pleasures of drugs, the pleasures of all these other kind of things. He said, my goodness, uh, you only live once is the implication. So eat, drink, and be merry. But when we get down to verse 4, we find the third experiment. And this is the experiment we're looking at today. He says, I made great works. He said, if wisdom doesn't solve it, and if, if pleasure doesn't solve it, then maybe work will, maybe employment will, maybe my, accomplish, uh, my accomplishments will make me feel significant. And so look at here. He starts to explain, I made myself uh, some great works. Now, I want you to know, before I go any further, just to, to do one of those um, Jeopardy moments, what kind of works do you think that he's talking about? Do, 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 do. You know, can you think of anything that Solomon built? Excellent. We got some people. We got some starting the life in here. When we all know that uh, Solomon did build some things because we said, oh, Solomon's temple. We've all heard of that. Uh, at the beach this morning, I was telling you, I've actually seen some of Solomon's great exploits. If you go to Israel and you get to see the Temple Mount, you're going to find that on the one side is the Western Wall. Some of them call it the Wailing Wall because there was a lot of tears. And if you get there, typically, you know, it's not that much fun to touch the wall. But that wall was the wall that was constructed by, guess who? Solomon. Solomon's temple had a huge foundation, and that foundation is still there today. A lot of people will put their prayers there because they know that the presence of God came to that great edifice. When God blessed the people and the Ark of the Covenant came, and boy, what a celebration that was. So you have Solomon building the temple. Did he do anything else? It almost seems a little bit modest for him when I'm, when I'm looking at uh, chapter uh, 2 and he says, verse 6, or verse 4, I made myself some great works. Listen to what he actually lists for him as, a, as an old guy. It's not that he forgot what he did, but he simplifies it. He said, I built houses. Okay? Then secondly, he says, I planted vineyards. Verse 5, he says, I also uh, it, it had some huge gardens. And he actually calls them parks, okay? Then you go on a little further in, in, uh, in verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, you can find that he actually made a grove of trees. You know, he had a fruit tree. Uh, basically, he planted all kinds of these uh, bearing, fruit-bearing trees, and, uh, and he didn't quit there. The way that he ends up summarizing it in verse 6, I even made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, that's an irrigation system if you haven't translated it. 
So in these three verses, in chapter 2, verse uh, 4, 5, and 6, Solomon is telling us a sample of his great works. And he says, I experimented building some great works. Some of us don't seem too impressed, except maybe with the temple. But uh, I want you to know that this was a major undertaking. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn back to 1 Kings chapter 5, 1 Kings chapter 5, you're going to find that this was not a small little detail. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, uh, listen to some of the great exploits that he actually did. Uh, verse 13, then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of Israel, a labor force of 30,000 men. Did you see that number? 30,000. Then he sent them to Lebanon and 10,000 a month in shifts. Uh, they were one month in Lebanon and two months back home. I mean, think about that. He had 30,000 and he could take 10,000 and take them on an expedition to go get the trees in Lebanon because that's where you have the, the, the trees of Lebanon. And then they would come back. And during that month, they would gather the lumber and the materials in order to build. In verse 15, Solomon had 70,000 uh, 70, who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. I was thinking that the Bible must be wrong. But that's hard for a Bible-believing pastor to say. Are you understanding what I'm trying to show you? That when Solomon said he experimented by building, I'm telling you, he did it all out. He didn't hold anything back. This guy was saying, hey, I've got the means to do it. We're going to build. Okay, we're going to make some great things. I mean, I think he was uh, doing a whole lot better than any of the previous presidents, whether they're building walls or trying to build tall buildings. I mean, Solomon was into it. He was building great exploits. Now, I was just showing you the, the labor force. Uh, when you realize that uh, if, I, if I showed you in chapter 6, the temple finally was built, you know, they had all the stones cut from the quarries with all those thousands and thousands of people trying to get it together. Uh, then they finally moved them over and get them to Jerusalem, get them to the mountaintop, and they build this beautiful edifice, the house of the Lord, Solomon's temple. In, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1 of 1 Kings, he says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished all his house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon, and he mentions how big it was, and it was paneled with cedar above with beams. Uh, he talks about how there were special windows opposite the other windows in three tiers. Uh, in verse 6 of chapter 7, he said, he also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and width was 30 cubits. Um, then verse 7, then he made a hall for the throne. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is, I think you're getting it. He built. And he didn't cheat. He didn't go skimpy. Uh, there was nobody, there was none of his uh, carpenters that had to say, well, we'll go get the cheap, cheap wood. No, Solomon said, let's do it with excellence. Now, having understood that, this experiment is quite interesting. He's already tried wisdom. It didn't satisfy. He tried pleasure, and it's not going to satisfy. And here we find he's trying exploits. He's trying accomplishments, and he did some great ones. And that leads us, secondly, to the evaluation. If you look now to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. 
Ecclesiastes 2.11. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. And you got an idea of what he's done. And Solomon says, Yes! I got it finished! No. As an old guy, he looks at it and he says, Nice. There's, there's something that doesn't satisfy. He built a, one of the wonders of the world. And uh, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in telling you that if it took 13 years to build this palace of his, which was right next to, the, to God's house, why do you think it took 13 years? Do you think they were lazy? No, it was because it was massive. And it was done with such superior excellence that, and by the way, he had to build enough rooms for all of his wives. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Uh, he had a lot of people to take care of. So now you know he had to build and build and build and build. Okay, now my point that I'm trying to show you though is that when he finished building all of these things, uh, I can take you to 1 Kings chapter 9 and, and give you a little bit of the feeling. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 9, and it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord says to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplications that you have made before me. In other words, Solomon did this experiment and he succeeded in building the one of the wonders of the world or you might even say two or three of the wonders of the world. Okay, this is pretty amazing stuff. When he finishes it all, God ends up talking to him. But in, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, he said, I considered all that I had done, all the toil that I had expanding and doing it, and behold, all was vanity a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is trying to pass on to people in his old age that if all that you're living for is to build up your, your portfolio, if all that you're living for is to build up a lineage, if all that you're living for is to be able to have a comfortable retirement, he says, let me tell you in advance, this is not going to satisfy your soul. Now, he doesn't just say that in verse 11. If you jump down to verse 18, he actually has another reaction. He says in verse 18, I hated all the toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether it will be a wise person or a fool person. He will be the master for all I had toiled under the sun. He says... This is crazy. It's empty. And so what you get in chapter 2 is you get the experiment which he did with the gusto, but you also get this evaluation that says, hey, people, stuff will never satisfy. Now, what he, he is exposing here is the mentality that's been on this earth even before the flood. Do you remember what was said about Noah's day? Noah was diligent building, building, building the boat. You know, he built it for 100 years. But what was everybody else doing? They were eating and drinking and enjoying their pleasures. Do you see some parallel? Uh, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. 
And basically the philosophy that the world has is that there's nothing more except our little existence. The dash between when we're born and when we die. So live it up. Go for the gusto. You deserve that break today. You know, and, and then in a sense, if you listen to the modern day voices, they're even telling you some new things that you don't have to work for small amounts of money. You don't need to do those trivial tasks. You can get somebody else to do that. You hear what you're, you're doing? You're in a sense already moving to, to believe that this is all there is. As Carl Sagan said, or Carl Sagan, he said, the, everything is just stardust. This is all there is and this is all there ever will be. What a shallow position to take. Now Solomon almost sets us up to all fall into that trap that we're listening to him and said, man, he tried it all and it wasn't good enough. Now, if I look a little further, you're going to find that it doesn't end there. Uh, the Bible doesn't stop with Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, I hate it all. I'm just going to end it all. No, it's very interesting. And I want you to follow along with his expectations. He's caught us like a, a, a spider uh, catching a fly. We're all caught in that web. Sometimes we feel that what we're doing is a waste of time, that it doesn't matter, that we've tried and tried and we've done this, we've sacrificed, we've done the Christian thing. You know, we all have said those kind of things. But we feel like, did we accomplish anything? Did it really matter? I mean, Solomon already felt this in chapter 1. If you remember, the, right after he said everything is vain, he says, what does a man gain by all of his labors? Verse 4, chapter 1. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains. Hey, after I'm, after I'm gone, it's, everything's going to keep going. It may be a little different here or there, but it's just going to keep going. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, and then the next thing you know, it hastens back to where it comes up again before it goes to where it goes down again. Do you hear the... It's almost like the treadmill of life. You just keep running and running and running and you get nowhere. But the expectation that Solomon leaves us is not dead after chapter 2, verse 18. I want you to know that there is hope. There is encouragement that comes, and it becomes clear in chapter 3. As some of you have heard this, I've mentioned this before, but I echo these verses in front of you because you need to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. So after Solomon has done this experiment and said, hey, people, none of these things are going to substitute, not earthly philanthropy, building these great... Um, vineyards, bringing all these different gardens together, all the fruit trees, even irrigation systems, all these things that make life easy. He said, it still isn't it. So then he starts into this phrase. Uh, he says, for everything, this is chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I like the fact that he mentions heaven here. He says, there is a time. And if you look a little closer, he says the first one, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And so even though this might sound a little morbid, it actually is good news. Solomon acknowledges that all of us are, are going to do like the New Testament tells us. A man is born and then he's going to die. He's going to stand before the judgment. It is appointed unto a man once to You know these verses. Hey, this is nothing new under the sun. And so Solomon starts off and he says, you all know it. You've seen it from experience. There's a time when birth comes and there's a time when you breathe your last on this earth. 
And so that's one of the points that he brings up as a part of this expectation is that he wants people to understand this. Now, if I jump down to in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, so he's, he's now asking this question again in light of what he's just revealed. What gain has the worker from his toil? He says, do you remember what I've been talking about, the experiment? What's your conclusion again? And he says, let me take you a little further. Not only do we know that you're only going to live for a period of time, uh, the Bible says that, uh, that our days are numbered, Psalm 90. And it also says in the New Testament that, that we do not know what's on tomorrow. We don't know how long we get, to, but our life is but a vapor that appears for a moment and then it's gone. So when he realizes that, now he gets into verse 9 and 10. He says, you are questioning what, what is your purpose? What is the reason for your doing the work? And he says, I have seen the business and God has. In verse 10, he has given to all kinds of people all the people that are made in his image, that God has given you some, some busy work. He doesn't put you on here just to waste your life away. God has given you a purpose to try to figure this out. To, and, and, and so the people haven't been able to really understand it. But in verse 11, Solomon gives us a little bit of help. God makes everything what? Beautiful in God's time. Do you really believe this? This is one of the things that, that we struggle with because if we stay with Solomon in the pundit's role and, our, and feel like everything is a waste, then you wouldn't be able to see that it's not a waste in God's time. If those of you that know Romans 8.28, Paul brings the same point out. He says, don't you know that God works all things together for the good to them who love God, who are the called according to his purposes? You can see the sovereign hand of God orchestrating things to bring good out of evil, just like what we sang from the Exodus song in chapter 50. It was a quote almost from Joseph. He says, you meant it for evil, people, but God worked it together for good, for my good, for our good. In that case, it was to sustain all kinds of people because Joseph ended up ascending to being vice pharaoh and, and uh, preserving a lot of food. So when the seven years of famine came, there was food to be found, food to be eaten. Now, when I understand this in chapter 3, if God makes everything beautiful in his time, that is something that's awesome. But the next verse, next part of the verse is what you got to get. He also has put eternity into your heart. You see, you may feel that this is all there is, you may have been told by Carl Sagan and all the people that are like him that, that there's nothing more. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is just going to be the way it is. And once you breathe your last, it's done. But Solomon says that God has put eternity in your heart. And what we taught the children during Bible school is that we were made in the image of God. We were given a soul that will never die, that is not linked to the chronological time on this earth, because it transcends. We have a soul that will never perish. When you realize this, now he starts looking at things a lot differently. And, and, but he says, even though you have eternity in your heart, you're going to still struggle. And this is where the rest of the verse says, he says, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man hasn't been able to figure out God. We don't have enough wisdom to see how it's all working out together for good. Because when we look out and we see things, we get frustrated when, when our car doesn't start, when the light bulb blows out, when, when, uh, when our cells cell connection falls and we can't finish a conversation or when when the government does this or that 
And we're, and we're like, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, everything's coming to an end. You know, sometimes we might get ourselves really worked up because we don't understand what God is doing. In fact, Paul writes to the people at Corinth and he says, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. When you try to figure out what God is doing, it just becomes a stumbling block to you. And that's why he talks about Jesus. Jesus to, to most earthly people are saying, what a fool. You believe in some guy that lived 3,000 or 2,000 years ago and, and he died? He was shamed. He was utterly dis, despised and rejected and they put him on some tree. And you guys get excited about a, a cross? I mean, if you had seen a cross during the time of the Romans, the Roman Empire, it was not something that you would glory about. And you would never, ever want to be hoisted up on one. They had perfected the persecution, the, the, the shaming, and so people would fall in line rather than fall in under their uh, despair. So when I look at this particular text, though, this expectation is that he has put eternity in our hearts. And if you look down to verse 14, you're going to find one more thing. The wise person has in his eyes, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. You see, Solomon has just been telling us that he built and built and built and built. And he's also told us that when he builds all these buildings and palaces and even houses for all of his wives, he says all of this stuff is empty because it's not going to last. He says, for one, you end up leaving it to your kids or you leave it to whoever usurps the kingdom. And that's what actually what happened in 931 when they had a, had a civil war. People couldn't work together. And the next thing you know, you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam fighting over stuff. And guess what happened to the glory days of Israel? It wasn't so much fun to live in a country that was no longer prospering. No longer did they have an economy where people were, were, were loving it. They didn't have, I mean, no longer did people even want to work the way they worked before. It's so sad when you see that decline. And Solomon is explaining all of that. But in verse 14, you know what won't decline? I perceive that whatever God does... Whatever God builds will last. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that the people will know and fear him. They'll recognize that this is not man-made. You know, we might, might say everything is made in China. Isn't it would be interesting to be able to see that it's made by God, that this was built by God? So I make the application today. If... if um, if whatever man does and what Solomon did with all of his glory, with all of his expenses available, with all of the, the resources that were available, all the manpower, the 70,000 and the 80,000, if Solomon did all of those things, do you think you can do better than Solomon? The answer is no. You might be able to get a, a bigger portfolio together than Solomon, but let me tell you, Solomon could put anything together that needed to be put together. And it wasn't good enough. So Solomon then gives with the expectations, he tells us, but there is one who can build something that lasts. There is one who actually makes it beautiful in his timing. He uses all these broken pieces and he puts it together. And when it's done, you just have to marvel. You have to fear God. You have to say, how did you, whoa. Okay, and that's one of the things. So when I ask, what has God been building? What has God been building? 
During Bible school, you know, we taught the song, and last week you were learning, building the kingdom. My wife reminded me, don't just say that, but it's not my own. You know, how it ends with that beautiful harmony. Not my own. We're building God's kingdom. But let me, let me tell you about God, how, what kingdom he's building. Okay, if you go to Matthew chapter 16, you're going to find that Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, before he went to the cross, he was with his disciples and he says, I'm building something great. I am building this thing called the ecclesia, the church. And I, it's kind of cool being a pastor called into the church. It almost seems like I have a self-fulfilling prophecy or I have a vested interest in this one. But he's building his church. Sometimes I have to wonder, did Solomon build a better church than Jesus? Because when you look around at all the people that claim to be a part of the church, there's a lot of people who are not very faithful. There's a lot of people who are not very kind. There's a lot of people that don't even get along. There's a lot of people that do crazy stuff then claim to be Christians and they're... It's hard to be able to see them being Christian. It's hard to see them doing this with Christ in their heart. But all of this is a mess. But Jesus is building this. And Solomon perceived, and we need to all understand it too, that he is going to build something that is going to last forever. Building his church. Now, what is the church? It is not bricks and mortar. What makes up the church? If you look at the bulletin or the take-home, and you're looking in there, how can you tell whether the church is healthy or not? Well, if they have enough money coming in, can you tell if, if they have enough seats in, in different services? Oh, last week we had more than this week. Oh, we're doing okay. What is the church? The church is made up of believers throughout all of time. As I tell you in the new members class, I believe Adam and Eve were a part of the church, and I believe that Jesus is committed to building this church. He's going to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation be a part of his church. From, and, and one day, he says that everybody from north, south, east, and west will be able to come and sit at kingdom, in the, uh, sit at, at kingdom, almost to have communion together. Because God's purpose, he's building a, a, an edifice where he is the head of the body, 1 Corinthians 14. And we are the different parts. And it's pretty amazing what he is putting together. And the world looks at it and said, the church? What? Those people? Those lunatics? Those liars? Those freaks? You know, whatever it is that they want to label at us, because when they can't see God, and when they see the foolishness of the cross, and when they think that we are throwing our money away and giving up one of the best days of the week to go to church. They can't see it. But unto us who are being saved, this is the power of God unto salvation. We see that there's something truth. We see the everlasting kingdom. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I can show you many other things that Jesus is building, but I want to jump right to John chapter 14. I believe that Jesus is also building a place for you and me that's not on this earth. It's not under this sun. It's not going to be filled with the toils of trying to find our meaning and purpose. I believe that Jesus said, and he said it so clearly, people don't let your hearts worry. To quote the text, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Yeah, you believe there's a God? You believe a God that makes all things beautiful in his time? He says, believe me. 
Because he's basically going to tell us that he is God. And in John chapter 6, he's already stated that. But in John 14, he's looking at his disciples. He says, stop your worry about all the things that are going on, all the things that are being built, because a lot of the things that are being built on this earth are not building his kingdom. They're building their own kingdoms. That's why politics can be so scary. Even building back better. What are they building? They're building something, an alternative. They're, they're trying to get heaven on earth. And the point is, is that Jesus said, no, 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 don't fall into that trap. I'm building a place for you where I am in heaven. If you turn to chapter 5, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says, be careful what you say with your mouth. Don't be rash with what you say, nor let your hearts be hasty to utter a word before God. In other words, all of you that are so quick to complain, all of you, and me included, that are so dissatisfied with things not going as well as you want them to be, especially if you're looking at your portfolio lately. Don't be mad at God. And the, because the verse says, for God is in heaven. Solomon makes the statement, a declarative statement. There is a heaven and I know it's there because God is there. God is in heaven. And you, you people, we are on this earth. And there's a difference. There's a difference. Heaven is this great place. So Jesus in John 14 says, I'm going to take you to heaven. And he explains it like this. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit here to, to have you do the building of my kingdom which is not building the biggest church in the world like the, like the Vatican is supposedly. It's building the kingdom by bringing, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and God is going to not make that, that endeavor void. Uh, according to Isaiah 55, as the word goes forth, it doubtless, will doubtless come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves because faith comes by hearing the word and God has ordained that as we go forth with these precious seeds that it's going to fall on some good ground and he's going to draw all kinds of people to himself. It's going to be beautiful, but we're building the kingdom. We're a part of that agenda. And then when that work on earth is done, when the edifice of the church is built then I believe the trumpet will sound and we'll be caught up together to be with the Lord and so shall we ever be with him. He says, don't worry. Let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe me, I go to build a place for you or prepare a place for you. As a kid, I always thought it must be pretty big. I mean, think about it. If Solomon took 13 years to build his palaces for all of his women, how long is it going to take Jesus to build a room or a mansion for us? We used to sing that song at church. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where I'll never grow old. And one day yonder, we will never more wander, but walk the streets that are pure as gold. The idea of heaven, it shouldn't be something foreign to us. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and he'll come again to receive us unto himself that where he is, we may be also. We're not there yet. The communion table is before us. As I lead in prayer in just a moment, I'm going to be asking the elders to come forward. Why do we have communion on this side of heaven? 
I call it a taste of heaven. In some of the institutions that God has created, just like marriage and just like communion, there is a moment where we realize that we get a taste of what he's gone to prepare for us. In the bulletin, you have a couple of these verses that I printed for you from 1 Corinthians 2.9. But it, as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared or built for those who love him. You can't even imagine it. Even that song that went really popular a few years ago, I can only imagine what it'll be. I want to encourage you that we really don't grasp how God is working it together for good, but he's making it beautiful in his time. And as we come to the Lord's table today, this is one of those moments where all of God's people are encouraged to come and dine. Just like I told you, God's purpose of building his church. And it's not just made up of this little local congregation and this little one and this little one. We're not supposedly all isolated. We're supposed to be together the body of Christ. We're supposed to be connected. And, the, and what binds us together is Jesus Christ, our head. I pray that even in my lifetime, that there would be more connectionalism. I don't know how he's going to bring it to pass. I think from my logic, from my study, from my 55 years plus of life, you know what tends to bring us together the most? Sadly. Oh, food. That's an actual good solution. <laughs> food could bring us together. Uh, normally what brings us together is pain. And when 9-11 happened, that was the one time in, in the last, you know, that I can remember that on all the signs on the highways, people were putting up something about praying for God to heal our land. It took a tragedy. It, it, a vulnerability exposed. Is that what we have to have in order to work together? Do we have to have a crisis that finally allows us to be united? Or do we get to live as, as, inter, or as, as dependent little groups? You have your little group and I have mine. I believe that we are like fingers on the hand. We may be a little different, but we serve one purpose. At the master's, at Christ's will, we work together to accomplish his purposes, to build his kingdom, not our own. This table is for Christians. It is not for people who want to be Christians. It is for believers. The reason why I have to fence this table is because Jesus taught the disciples and especially the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, don't eat of this if you can't discern. If I care enough about you, I'm going to tell you, don't just eat it because the plate comes by you or the cup is there. It's not out of convenience. This is a taste of heaven. He says, I am going to commune with you because what makes heaven great is not the streets of gold. It's not the mansions that you get to sleep in by the crystal sea. What makes heaven great is Jesus will be there and our sin natures won't be. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout that victory that we just sang about. I'm going to pray as the elders come forward. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you'll prepare our hearts to come and dine. I pray that you will help us to see how wonderful you have things prepared for us. 
it will be so beautiful in your timing. Lord, right now we live in a fallen, broken world. We're grateful that there's been grace extended, that it's not as bad as it could be. We're thankful that you have given us mercy upon mercy, and you have actually blessed us with things that we don't deserve. You brought beautiful children into our world. You've given us, a, at least especially here in America, a sense of freedom and liberty. You've provided for our own copies of the Word of God to be in our hands if we want, or even to be on electronic uh, uh, phones. Lord, we have so much... Or as the song says, so much, so much, so much to be thankful for. But Lord, we really only want to thank you for the one main thing, for you. Lord, if not for you, we would be like all the other people that Solomon talked about, who are just going through this life, wasting their life away, eating and drinking and marrying because they can't see the eternity that you put in their heart. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us with a sweet taste of communion in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in Luke chapter 22, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus in the upper room, there near Solomon's temple, it had been replaced as it had been torn down and it, by Nebuchadnezzar's group, but it had been rebuilt to be Herod's temple. There, not far away from it, from eyesight. If you're at the upper room on Mount Zion, you can see the Temple Mount across the way. But Jesus is with his people and he transforms the Passover into the communion service. He moved from the bloody feast where they had to kill an animal and remind themselves of the blood that had to be put on the doorposts on the top and on the sides, almost as if you can see a cross being done when they painted it. God had to see the blood to pass over, and that Passover was only seen as a temporary, uh, not a fix, but as a reminder to keep in front of people. And that was done perpetually until Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain, and no more would blood be spilt. But on this day, the blood had not been spilt. In chapter 22, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus gathers the disciples, and, uh, and they wanted to be prepared. And on the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I die, before I suffer, before I do what needs to be done. See, how God was going to make something beautiful in his time, he was going to take the Lamb of God and put him to death. But then he was going to raise him from the dead. He said, verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. It's beautiful. You can see how God was making it beautiful. Oh, how ugly it was, the death of Christ. But oh, how beautiful it was that he would demonstrate love uncomparable. Greater love could not be shown than that he would lay down his life for you and me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this sweet communion. When we come and partake of it, 
It is real juice and real bread. And we realize that it does not turn into Jesus. We are not having a new sacrifice where we put you to death again. Lord, we are just being invited to come and dine. And as we partake, we know that you are here with us. We know that your presence is real. And as we partake, we know that we are not just believing something of our own imaginations, but as sure as we can taste the juice and the sweetness, and as we can consume the bread and its, and its substance, we know that our God is within us. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us with this sweet communion. Set apart these common elements for the purpose that you have ordained in Jesus' name.